hey, next week begins Advent season at Journey. If you haven't already, I want to remind you to stop by our Advent resource table. Uh, it basically takes, uh, takes Christmas back from the American culture and reminds us that this entire season is about Jesus, not Santa. Um, it's five very directed weeks. We'll start next week with our candle lighting here in service, but you can do that at home. For specifically those of you who have kids and grandkids, you can take the five Sundays that lead into Christmas and really make them about Jesus. We've got some uh, kind of guides out there for parents and children. We've got some candle kits you can look at. We've got some memory verses. Danielle and I and our family um, are going to do one of the candles, and we're going to do the 10 memory verses that our church is giving away. Um, you can't get those or buy those out there, but inside your bulletin is this QR code. Everything on that table. Uh, is listed on a website, and you can go click it and buy it on Amazon or wherever um, those things are listed. We would love for you um, to be a part of that. Let me follow up a little bit on what Pastor Jay also said. Uh, today, we've got what we call our Journey Creative Booth set up in the atrium, um, and it's underneath kind of the, the big word Jesus on the wall. One of the cool things about Journey in 2023 and 2024 is we are launching a church in Las Vegas and we're sending about 25 people uh, with one of our church planning residents, Christian Gracia, who will be back in December to preach and give us an update on how he's doing. Um, but about half of that team that's going serves in our creative department. We have some needs for hearts and hands in our church that can do or is willing to learn creative things to help us in our creative process. So if you're not serving yet... And you would be interested in having not just impact here, but a global impact through our creative ministry. If you just, before the end of today's service, walk across that Jesus wall, meet some of our uh, guys and gals over there, see what we have that you can engage with. Um, you could kind of help us multiply. We're sending people out, but we're praying God backfills those positions with ministry that's needed. If you have your Bibles today, we're in Philippians chapter 4. We're finishing a series this week called The Surrendered Life. We've spent eight weeks in the book of Philippians um, listening to a man named Paul who planted churches all over the Mediterranean basin 2,000 years ago. And we're, we're seeing what it looks like to surrender your life, to leverage your life and the things in your life, good or bad, for Jesus and his gospel and who he is and his mission and his work around the world. And as we get to the eighth message, as we get to the end of the book, today we're going to be speaking specifically about surrendering our generosity Surrendering our generosity. You say, why is that? Why are you talking about generosity? Well, because we preach from the Bible, and the verses that we're preaching about today are talking about generosity. So we're just going to talk about what Paul talks about, but you need to understand generosity was, was the fingerprint of this church in the ancient world. So I've asked you to go to Philippians 4. I'll be there in a minute. I'm going to start in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Corinth was another town in ancient Greece, about 500 miles from Philippi. Paul had started a church there. He wrote a letter to this church asking them to take an offering to help him. And as he wrote this letter, and in the middle of this letter, asked them to take an offering to help him, I want you to hear how he talks about the church at Philippi, which he refers to as the church at Macedonia, which is kind of the same region in Greece. Macedonia would be the state. Philippi would be the city. Because it's not very often in one of Paul's epistles that he talks about churches in different cities, but this is one of those times and I want you to listen to how he talks about the faith of the church at Philippi. Paul says this, asking the church at Corinth for an offering. He says, and now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. That's Philippi. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. 
And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part, to take an offering. That's what he's saying. Verse 7, but since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love that we have kindled, and you see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Look at verse 8. It'll be on the screen. I'm not commanding you, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by comparing your offering with the offering of the church in Philippi. Paul said, Philippi has set the standard for generosity. And every time any church gives anything... I look at it in comparison to what the church at Philippi did because they were unbelievably generous. This was the fingerprint of their church. Uh, a few months ago, I had the opportunity to, to speak to a group of about 20 church planners who have in the last year or in the next two years will plant churches in Kansas City. And, and I just got to share a little bit of, of our story. Um, and when you're a guy who, who starts a church in your living room with 15 people and then it looks like what it looks like on Sunday morning, church planners want to ask you questions and they want to know, like, what did, what did you, how did that happen? And the answer is always, we don't know. Like, God, God did it. Uh, we couldn't have planned it. We tried actually not to do it. Um, but here we are, God did it. And they're like, what did you do that you would recommend that we did? I said, I've, two, I've only got two answers for you. From the very beginning, we gave. Uh, we never took an offering without giving an offering. We never took a dollar without giving a dime of that offering away. If you're asking me one of the unique things that's allowed God's hand to be on our church, we, we, give, we never take an offering without giving an offering. We give. We're a very generous church. And in the last few years, we've become a praying church. We have intentional prayer times and prayer services, uh, and we have hundreds and hundreds of people in our church that pray. If I could tell you to do anything while you're a church of 10 to 15 people, um, if you take an offering, give and pray, pray together. Um, I'm not telling you that what has happened to us will happen to you. I'm just saying, there's like everything else we've kind of messed up. If God's blessing us, it may be because of those things, because we gave and because we pray. I, I think it is one of the unique fingerprints on, on our church and our culture. And as we jump into Philippians chapter four today, we're gonna see something that maybe you haven't noticed up until now, but as Paul winds his letter down, it's like, I didn't realize that's what we were doing here. In Philippians 4.10, where we'll start today and then we'll work our way through the chapter, Paul says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I want to pause right there because when you read this, if we would have just started from the beginning and read this letter, we would have got to verse 10 and said, wait a minute, Philippians is nothing more than a thank you note, like a, a glorified, overly spiritual, deeply theological thank you note? Yes. Verse 10 tells us that the whole purpose of Paul writing was to say, hey, thanks for the offering that you gave me. Um, weren't sure if you guys were going to come through, but you did, and I'm really, really grateful. As a matter of fact, Philippians is one of the only epistles where Paul does not address a problem in the church or a question from the church. He starts the letter by saying, hey, just want to update you on me. want to tell you how Jesus is working in me. And he gets to the end of it, and he's like, and thanks for your offering. Philippians is a very glorified, very glory-filled, very discipleship-oriented thank you note, but it's not much more than that. Other than addressing a little bit of conflict between people and unity, Paul's not trying to disciple them as much as he's just saying, thank you for your gift. And as he winds down the letter, he is, in his thanks, going to teach us two lessons about generosity that I believe every Christian should know. 
And that I believe followers of Jesus led by the Holy Spirit will work to have as they kind of process life and even church life a little bit. Number one, we're going to see in verses 11 through 13 that the foundation of generosity is contentment. Paul's going to say, you were able to be generous because you're content. And he's like, I'm grateful that you gave, but I need you to know I'd have been good either way. Because I'm content. So like, thank you. But I just like, even if you couldn't have come through, I'm good. Because I am content. The foundation of generosity is contentment. Look at verses 11, 12, and 13. Paul said, I'm not saying thanks because I'm in need. For I've learned to be content, whatever my circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and in every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in what... I can do all of this, or maybe you've seen it this way. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, I was introduced to Philippians 4.13 at the same time that many of you were introduced to Philippians 4.13. It was the fall of 1996, and there was a boxer named Evander Holyfield who was going to try to fight fresh out of prison Mike Tyson. And across his boxing trunks, he had the word, the, the, the Bible verse, anybody? Philippians 4.13. Um, it's interesting because he became a global Christian icon, even though he'd had 11 different kids with six different women at the time. When you put a Bible verse on you and you're on TV, it's like, we need that guy to help us spread the gospel because Jesus isn't enough. So it's like Jesus and Evander Holyfield can help us reach the world for Jesus Christ. Anyway, he fought with this verse on, on his shorts. Um, and I think the context he was thinking was I can, I can knock out Mike Tyson because Christ strengthens me. But that's, that's actually not what the verse means at all. The verse doesn't mean you can do everything because you have Jesus. The verse actually means I can be content even if I get knocked out by Mike Tyson because I have Jesus. I can be content even if he bites off one of my ears because I, like I have Jesus. Some of you remember this trilogy of fights in the late 90s. Like I was introduced to that verse as a verse that told me I could do anything if I had Jesus. But that's not what the verse says at all. The verse says if you are content, Jesus plus contentment can allow you to absolutely get through anything and live in a way that is impactful to the world for Jesus. This is a verse about contentment, not really strength. If it is strength, it's the strength of being content. And it's interesting because it's important to note that Paul didn't just have the secret of being content. He was teaching. He taught the secret of being content to those that he discipled. So Paul's like, I have this, but I want you to have this. Let me ask you a question. For those of you who believe in generosity, and your checkbook backs up your belief, for those of you who are engaged in generosity, question, have you taught anyone else to be generous like you? Have you helped them understand why you're generous? Have you told them the blessings you've received both spiritually and in faith as you've given? Have you talked about the impact that your giving have? Have you talked about how one of the reasons you work and continue to work is so that you can steward what God wants to give you? I'm afraid we, we have a generation of people who give faithfully who can't point to one other person that they've discipled in the area of generosity because we don't really like to talk about it. And I'll be honest with you, I am the most guilty there will be people who stand before God one day who went to journey for a long time. And God says, how come you were never generous financially? And they will correctly say, Christian never said anything about it. 
because I was raised and kind of came through a season um, where I was impacted negatively by a church talking about money. So I just said, I'll just never talk about money. That will make me feel better. That will make the people feel better. There are some of you sitting in here today that literally when I give the message title, you're like, come on. All churches talk about is money. Not our church. This is one of the first times. Honestly, I should do it more. It's one of my pastoral weaknesses that I don't like to talk about money because of some of the things in my past. But I promise you, you have been created to live with the impact of generosity on your soul and the impact of generosity in the world. And some of you aren't even aware of that yet because I, I never say anything about it because it, it's easier for me not to. feel like maybe we'll be closer if I don't. So Paul said, I've learned the secret of being content, but I am teaching that to other people. And the guy he discipled more deeply than anyone else, like some of his closing words to him were teaching him about being content. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you have your Bible, you can flip over there. If not, it'll be on the screen. Paul, when he's mentoring Timothy, says this to Timothy. Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and they've pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul said, Timothy, if you can learn to be satisfied with having your daily needs met, he would, he would call daily needs having food and clothing. Uh, I think we would say in the 21st century that that would extend to food and clothing and shelter. If you have food and clothing and shelter, like you're taken care of. So how do you use the rest of what you have? Because Paul says in verses 9 and 10, if your mindset is that you want to get rich, if your mindset is that you always need more money, it's going to be dangerous. It's interesting because Paul said this is, this is a re it's not just a reality, it's a mindset. It's a mindset of needing extra money versus having extra money. Timothy, lots of people are going to have extra money. And the way they use it might be very, very generous. It might be very, very God-honoring. But there's a difference between being satisfied with what God has given you and always needing more. Timothy, be careful when your mindset says, I need more, I have to have more. Beware when you want to get rich and be eager for money so that you can have more than what you currently have or more than enough. A mindset of needing extra. You say, needing extra for what? Well, here's the mentality. Paul actually answers that question. Be careful after your basic needs have been met. If you constantly need more, why? Because here's the trap, verse 17. Command those who are rich, who have extra, in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Paul says people hope in one of two things in verse 17. He said, tell people who got the basic needs of their life met not to have a mindset that they need more. They might have more, but not to have a mindset that they need more or they will begin to put their hope in wealth. It's hard to practice generosity when money is your security. It's hard to give when you need and I have found this lesson to be true for most American Christians living in our city in this generation. 
The vast majority of sitting in the people, uh, the people sitting in the room today have everything they need probably for today, but none of us have what we need forever. And that tension impacts our generosity. I had lunch with a, a, a guy this week, and I've had this conversation several times with people wrestling through a call in their life and trying to, trying to figure out how do, I, how do I navigate providing for my family and doing what Jesus has called me to do at the same time. Sometimes there's tension in that. And we got to the point in the conversation where kind of jokingly it was brought up, but this has been brought up over and over and over again. Like, if I was just at a place where I was financially secure, like I would give the rest of my life to serve Jesus. And I looked at him and I said, you know every Christian on the globe would say that. If I was just at a place where I never needed another dollar to be taken care of for the rest of my life, I'd give my whole life to Jesus. Who wouldn't? Like, what Christian... If you knew you never needed to make another dollar, wouldn't give your whole life to Jesus. That is the warning of Philippians chapter 4, of 1 Timothy chapter 6. That if you're waiting until you have enough forever to be generous, you'll never be generous. Because your hope is in your wealth. It's the thing that takes care of you. So Paul told Timothy, put your hope in God. And this will allow you to enjoy the extra you have. If you have extra, that's awesome. Enjoy it. God's given it to you to enjoy. But make sure you're generous with it too. It's a really powerful thought. Paul said, not only have I learned the secret of being content, I am teaching and discipling the secret of being content. For those of you who give faithfully, can I ask you to do something that has nothing to do with your money? Next year, will you disciple somebody in the grace of giving? Will you teach them how important it is to live generously? Because if you will just reproduce that aspect of your faith in your kids, in your grandkids, in one of your family members, in a friend, in a young man or a young woman you're discipling, it will forever impact their soul and have impact on the kingdom. Paul says, if you learn how to give, you'll have life that is truly life in verse 19. So generosity is a spiritual mindset that brings spiritual life if Jesus is your security, generosity will be your legacy. If generosity is not your legacy, it's possible that it's because you do not trust Jesus to take care of you, not just for today, but forever. But that is a faith thing, which is the second lesson Paul teaches us, that the focus of generosity, it has to always be faith, not finances. Spiritually generous people are not generous because of the amount of money they have. Spiritually generous people are generous because of the amount of faith that they have. Paul, Jesus even said, like, I, I'm not counting the total that you give. I'm counting the percentage that you give because that tells me about your faith. I don't care about your money, but I do care about your faith. So the foundation of generosity is contentment. But if you live a life of generosity, it's because of your faith, not your finances. Look at verses 14 through 20. Paul said, I didn't need it. I've learned to be content, yet it was good of you to give it. Thank you. It was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I've received the full payment. I have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They're a fragrant offering. They're an acceptable sacrifice. They're pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs, just like you've met mine. 
according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I don't know if you saw it in those verses, but Paul gives us the motivation, what I would call faith-fueled reasons for why Christians give in that text that we just read. Gave us five faith-fueled reasons. Here's why. Here's the reason behind why followers of Jesus are generous towards the things of Jesus. In verse 14, they believe in sharing with those in need. And of course, we all believe in that. Is why we distributed 300 Thanksgiving boxes door-to-door yesterday and to some of our ministry partners because we believe this is what Christians do. They share with people in need. We also believe, verse 15, in supporting the gospel, helping people understand that the God of the universe loves them, wants to live in a relationship with them, will forgive them, will be with them. We believe that that's important for people to, to know God. We believe in supporting the gospel. I think most people, verse 17, believe in spiritual investment, that if there really is a heaven after this earth, that if we really, um, if we really in heaven are rewarded for our faith and our deeds, then we want to invest in eternal things, not just earthly things. In verse 18, Paul used some kind of Old Testament Judaism language, a sacrifice that is pleasing. It's, it's making sure we don't live our whole life for ourselves, but we sacrifice some of what could be ours so that, so that God can understand uh, we're willing to take what he's given us and use it for his kingdom. And in verse 19, Paul said, one of the reasons we give is because we believe um, spiritual riches are more important than like worldly riches. Now, this list on the screen behind me, I believe there's universal agreement with not just Christians, but non-Christians, that people should live generously for these purposes. Why do Christians give? What is their motivation? Because the world needs help. The world needs hope. The world needs Jesus. If there is eternity, we want to get ready for there. Like, I believe so strongly in this that I would believe this. As a church, when you give an offering, we take the first 15% of that and give it away. I think if you came in next week and we said, hey, we're going to stop doing that. It's been a good run for 12 years, but we're going to kind of keep everything that we have for ourselves. Now, I believe most of you would be correctly spiritually upset. Most of it is not your money that we take or give away. But you would say, that's not right. For a church to take an offering without giving an offering, churches should help people. You're right. Christians should help people. I believe the feeling in your heart towards generosity is already set by the Holy Spirit. The question is, have you begun to excel in this grace of giving? Have you even begun to practice it a little bit? Let's break down these reasons kind of one at a time. Verse 15, we'll kind of go out of order here. Letter B, we give to support the gospel. At least for the Philippian church, the training wheels of generosity were the learning to support the work of ministry that God was doing to connect people to himself. So one of the primary reasons we give is so that God can work. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a very strange parable. It's called the parable of the shrewd manager, where he talks about how a guy leveraged his earthly money to make earthly friends. And he said, Christians should get better at that. Christians should get better at leveraging their generosity for eternal things because people do it on earth all the time. So Christians should figure out how do I take my life, my stuff, and how do I leverage it for eternal purposes? This church in Philippi learned to be generous because they heard Paul was starting a church in Corinth. They heard he needed help. And they're like, man, if what happened here happens there, if people's lives are changed there, like people's lives were changed here, Paul, like keep, keep doing work. 500 miles away in a city most of them had never been to. They heard God was moving. And they're like, we're all about that. 
And they began to support that. And those became the training wheels for God can use our stuff to help his mission. We also see letter D, that sacrifice is pleasing. The spiritual heart of generosity initially is gratitude. Most followers of Jesus who give believe they're giving back. They believe that everything God has given them, everything they have, God has given them, and they just want to give some of it back. So you say, where would the Philippian people learn that their stuff could be used by God? Somehow their heart was shaped to believe that God has given me things that he can use and I want to give back. We learn in Genesis chapter 4 and Genesis chapter 14 and Genesis chapter 28 that the first offerings were all given as worship offerings. It was all gratitude. It was all thank you. It was all God, you're great. The first offering we read given in scripture was given by a guy named Abel, one of Adam and Eve's sons. And he gave in a way that correctly said thank you to God. Later we would see one of Adam's spiritual ancestors, a guy named Abram, uh, was helped in a battle to capture some of his family members who'd been captured in a, in a, in a raid in kind of southern Israel. What, we, what we've seen happening recently has been happening on every page of the Bible, this conflict and these raids in and out of this land. And when Abram wins this war, it says that he gave a 10% offering to the priest Melchizedek as, as a way to just say thank you to God. Two generations later, his grandson Jacob would say, God, if you'll bless me and take care of me, I'll give you 10% of everything that I own. It's interesting, before there was a Mosaic Code, before there was Judaism, before Moses, before there were any Bible verses, it appears the standard of a worshipful offering that says thank you was 10%. The biblical word is tithe. 10% of what God has given me, I give back to say thank you. It's a sacrifice that is pleasing to say thank you to God. We see in verse 17, or letter C, that giving is a spiritual investment. The spiritual hands of generosity, they begin with worship, but eventually they grow from believing that they can invest in the work of, the, of earthly kingdom ministry. So we don't just give back. All of a sudden, we give up. All of a sudden, we're investing in eternal things. Jesus taught us to pray a prayer, and part of that prayer is this. Let your kingdom come and your will be done on How's that going to happen? You know, the first two offerings taken in the history of the country Israel were to give for earthly kingdom ministries by building a tabernacle and building a temple. They gave towards a place that would do 24-hour-a-day ministry. They wanted God's kingdom somehow to be represented on earth as it was in heaven. So God says, all right, let's give an offering to establish this thing that all day, every day is going to exist to connect people to God. Invest spiritually in kingdom work on earth as it would be in heaven. We don't just give back. We give up. We invest in things that are helping do ministry. We learn in verse 14 that giving is sharing with those in need. But this is fascinating because in Scripture we learn the heart and the hands of generosity towards God would train the hearts and hands of people to be generous with others. So giving is, it's giving back, it's giving up, but giving is giving out. But the people of Israel learned how to give out by first giving back and giving up. So the first time I ever taught on tithing in our church, we were in Summit Lakes Middle School. For those of you not aware of our backstory, we went from 15 people meeting in my living room. Eventually, we spent five years doing church in Summit Lakes Middle School. We'd set up and tear down every week, and our, our church kind of grew from there. One of the first Sundays I ever taught about tithing, this thought of giving a tenth, giving back, 
in the church. I got an email from a, a lady in our church, a young mom in our church, asked me a question I'd never heard. And, it, and the answer to her question blew my mind spiritually. She said, hey, Pastor Christian, interesting message on tithing. She says, as I've read scripture, I can't figure out if tithing is something that like you, that, like, you give um, to like church, to God. Or is it something you give to like people who are hurting? You give it directly to them? Or is it something you like just keep and like you buy meals and you eat yourself? Because the Old Testament appears to say all those things. And she listed the scripture for all of them. And I thought, she's exactly right. So I began this months-long study, Jewish history, Jewish scriptures, uh, Jewish scholars, working my way through what exactly is the 10% that these Old Testament Israeli people give that we now call the tithe and the, that, that we acknowledge as the tithe in the local church, not because it makes us righteous before God, but because there's some spiritual principles in it. And what I learned is that there were three tithes in Israel that people gave at different times for different reasons. What were the three tithes of Israel? The first tithe was given to the Levites for the work of the daily ministry at the temple. We read about it in Leviticus 27 and Numbers chapter 18. We would say, if you're writing uh, on your notes, the first tithe was personal. It was a personal offering that you gave to God. We're told the reason for the first tithe is this. After God pulled all the people of Israel out of Egypt, he said, here's the deal. I could make all of you serve me 24 hours a day. It could be your whole life in ministry, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to have one tribe. One of 12 is going to do that, Levites. The rest of you are going to give 10% of what you have as your personal offering that says this. I wish I could serve God 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I wish I could work at the church and do nothing but talk to God on behalf of people. I wish it was my part in life to serve God with everything I have. But it's not. It's theirs. So I'll give 10% to support that. So the first tithe was a personal tithe. With the personal motivation of, I wish I could give my whole life to God, but that's not my call. So I give 10%. The second tithe was given to celebrate God's work at festival meals with your spiritual community. We read about this in Deuteronomy 12, verses 5 and 6 and 11 and 18. I would call this maybe a national tithe. We might kind of almost see this like maybe a, like a, a tax that supported religious festivals. This second tithe was to be brought to Jerusalem... And it was to be used there to celebrate the spiritual pilgrimage. So there was this thought that the first tithe would be your personal investment in what you wish you could give your whole life to. The second tithe was this national investment for you saying, I need to figure out a way to support some of the things I do spiritually and to make sure that our nation is kind of all staying on track together. So I would bring this second 10% usually once a year, probably to the Passover festival. And, and I would make it there as a meal and me and maybe my village, all my spiritual family, we would, we would have this huge type of Thanksgiving meal together. The third tithe was one that was only given once every three years. So we're going to kind of break this up into three and a third every year. It was given once every three years to provide for the poor that lived among the villages in Israel. We see it written about in Deuteronomy chapter 14 and Deuteronomy 26. In addition to this, there was the Levitical law of gleaning, which meant as a farmer, you never cut the corners of your fields. You never picked every apple on the tree. You didn't beat all the grapes off the vines. You, you left those for people. There was this third tithe that once every three years, you, you wouldn't give it to the work of the ministry, nor would you take it for spiritual community. You would put it in a storehouse in your town, your village, and you would say, if anyone is in need, this thing is all... It was a massive food pantry. It would go to support a food pantry. 
which when you read about these three tithes in Israel is absolutely mind-blowing because here's what it means. It means on average, a Jewish family would give between 25 and 30% of their resources to God as ministry and his people every year. And in the time of Jesus, they also pay taxes to Rome. You say, okay, you just lost me. Are you asking me to increase my giving to 30% a year? I'm not doing that at all. I just want you to see the breadth of generosity that like our spiritual ancestors took part in. So they're every year given somewhere between 25 and 30% of their total income to God, the people of God, the work of God, hurting people. There was like this personal tithe, this national tithe, this social tithe that was once every three years. They were like these massively generous people, but they learned how to share with people in need by learning how to leverage their resources for God. I'm not trying to challenge you. I'm trying to inspire you to say that like generosity is a big deal. It's a big deal to God. It's a big deal to his people. It's a big deal to his church. That's just kind of how it's always worked. And in verse 19, Paul says, if you give, you end up not earning, but realizing spiritual riches. Like so many areas of our faith, God asks us to give, but only so that we might actually receive. If we give back and if we give up and if we give out, this would be kind of what we get back. We get to experience Jesus in our life. Philippians 4.19, if you will learn to be generous, my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. When you learn to be generous, you not only live like Jesus, you experience Jesus in your faith walk. So you say, where is this going? Philippians 4, believe it or not, has a, has a connection to where we're headed in 2024. We're going to give our church, we're asking our church to consider, not mandated, but think about what we call a generosity discipleship challenge, growing in your faith. The big picture of spiritual generosity looks like this. I, I believe this should be the minimum goal for a follower of Jesus trying to live in the rhythms of Jesus. Invest 10% of your annual income as sacrificial giving to support your local church or an organization doing gospel ministry that impacts you and your family. If you've had bad experiences, give it to a church. Don't give it to a church. But find someone doing the work of the gospel that's impacting you and give it to them. And then invest, in addition to that, 3.3% of your annual income to directly share with people hurting in your spiritual village. Friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, this is just an investment that you set aside. And you know, because we all go through rainy days, there's going to be a time where someone in my world needs some help. And I have filled this barn with my social tithe. Just kind of keep it off to the side there. And anytime somebody needs it, I, I go right to it and I help them. Now, the financial realities of 2024 is most people who've not began a generosity journey yet are looking at that saying, there's no, like, there's no shot. They're, like, I, I cannot give, go from 0% to 13.3% giving. I'd have to sell my house, sell my cars, I'd go in debt. No, don't do that. Those are just kind of the long-term goals. And we know part of discipleship is training. So we have, uh, in January, we have a finance class led by one of the kind of financial experts in our church to help people learn how to steward their money, budget their money, do things better. We've got a kind of Sunday school class that in February we'll begin to meet and meet for eight weeks. We, we know, I believe the, the heart of a Jesus follower is to give, but most of them, their hands are empty. So we know for you to be able to do what we're asking you to do, we gotta, we gotta help you. That's coming in 2024. But you don't have to get here right away. 
I would say your 2024 next steps are this. Start small, but start now. It's one of my favorite discipleship phrases from Pastor Wayne Cordero at New Hope Church uh, in Hawaii. Start small, start now. Whatever Jesus tells you to do that you're not doing, start small, but start now. So here's what we're asking for next year in our 1% challenge. Invest 1% more of your annual income to grow towards 10% in your giving to the local church or those doing gospel ministry impacting you and your family. So last year, if you gave 0%, this year, give 1%. Last year, if you gave 5%, go figure out the 1% more to grow towards that first tithe of saying, God, I wish I could serve you with my whole life every day. It's not my calling, but I'm going to support the church that does that. If you are already tithing, and most of our givers already are at that 10% point, if you're already investing 10% of your money to gospel ministry, begin investing 1% of your annual income to share directly with those in need in your spiritual village. You say, how do I know who they are? Here's what I will promise you because Danielle and I did this this year. You start investing the money, God will make the need clear. I promise you. You start investing that 1% nest egg, at some point during the year, it's going to be very, very clear who needs it. And here's what's cool. God knew someone in your circle needed your help next year. So he had me preach this message November 19th to get you ready. Because a lot of times opportunities present themselves and we think, man, I wish I had, I wish I had 500 bucks to help. But I've not saved that. You could begin with this gospel generosity mentality of putting it away. And I promise you, you'll know who you're supposed to give it to and when you're supposed to give it in your spiritual village. What are we going to do as a church? Well, we believe in generosity. So our next steps are this. Here's what we're going to do. You can pray for us. We are going to increase our giving as a church from 15% to 16% next year. And our goal is to increase 1% more each year for the next five years, Lord willing. We feel like we've been at 15% far too long and we want to go to 20%. We know it's going to take a little time to get there because we're not ready like you're not ready. But we're going to go 1% more. And next year, we're going to invest all that 1%, which will be between sixty dollars and $70,000, directly to foster care community in our city to help serve foster families engaged in loving and caring for foster children. That's what your generosity will support next year's journey. Every time you give, 1% of what you give collectively will go to help kids in our community who are trying to figure out who they're going to be with and who they may be with long term. So, like, we're, we're with you in this faith journey. Philippians has been an incredible book, a really impactful thank you note. It ends this way in verses 21 through 23. Paul says, greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send their greeting, and all God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let me close today like Paul closed. Paul said, hey, tell everyone hi. Hi. And may Jesus be all you need. Paul closed this incredible epistle by saying, hey, make sure you tell everybody hi. And may Jesus be all you need in life. As we close, there'll be some reflection questions that you can just pause and reflect on for about two minutes in your generosity journey and praying for us as a church to have impact in the foster community. Then I'll come and close this in prayer. God, thank you for what we've heard. Let generosity impact our soul and our world because of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray it. Amen.